You've been hearing how some big brands are winning through simplicity. But don't get intimidated. You can do this too, no matter the size of your team or your budget. Want to learn the six behaviors you can instill to create simple experiences for your customers and your team members? Download a free copy of my simple playbook today. It'll help you immediately turn your customer experience around and create an Amazon experience without having an Amazon budget. Grab your copy of my simple playbook at mattliles.com slash simple playbook. Welcome to the Simple Brand Podcast, the show dedicated to helping you create simple experiences for your customers and for your team members. Each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with business leaders and authors who will teach you how to differentiate your business with the one thing your customers need the most, simplicity. Your customers live in a complex world. Let's make it simple. Now, here's your host, Matt Lyles. There are a number of authors and thought leaders today who are teaching some really fascinating lessons, and they're helping a lot of people. If you don't follow them already, you're likely to be familiar with some of the names. Brene Brown, Tim Ferriss, Brendan Burchard, Marie Forleo, Lewis Howes, Amy Porterfield, Michael Hyatt, and so many others. You know, some are really great at teaching you how to thrive in business. Some are great at teaching you how to thrive in your personal life, and some are great at both. But if you think of all the foundational lessons you're hearing today on how to thrive in leadership, how to thrive in your business, how to thrive in your personal life, those lessons were also taught by Edward Earl Purinton. Only he taught them over a hundred years ago, and his published works have remained mysteriously hidden for over 60 to 70 years until Ari Berkowitz unearthed them this past year. Now, Ari's a former rabbi and a current sales professional. To hear his background, it doesn't really sound like there's anything truly remarkable about him. But what is remarkable is that he found a treasure in Puritan's work, and he decided to share that treasure with the world, starting with Puritan's book, The Triumph of the Man Who Acts. Now, I read The Triumph of the Man Who Acts this past December when my friend David Norrie gifted me a copy of the book. Thanks, David. I started reading it that night, and I was hooked. I can't remember the last time I was this excited about a book. I mean, this excited about a non-comic book book. In fact, David and I call it the greatest book you've never read. And while both the timeliness and and the timelessness of Puritan's lessons are fascinating to me. I think the story of how Ari found the book, unearthed it, and republished it this past year is just as fascinating. And I can't wait for you to hear all of that. So let's just jump right in. Here's my interview with Ari Berkowitz. Hi, Ari. How are you doing today? I am well, Matt. Thank you for having me on. Oh, thanks for being here. It is it is great to see you. I have uh, I've enjoyed getting to know you uh, the past couple of weeks and talking with you. I mean, this is uh, I'm, I'm I'm excited about today. This is a fantastic subject, and I cannot wait to dive into this. It's an awesome story about the author Edward Earl Purinton, an awesome story about his book, and an awesome story about how you found it. We're talking about Edward Earl Purinton. 
and what my friend David Nori and I like to refer to as the greatest book that you've never read, The Triumph of the Man Who Acts. Just to start off, I think maybe, maybe right now, not enough people are familiar or have heard of Edward Earl Purinton. So first, let's start, you know, tell me what's his background? Like, what's the background of him and this book? Sure. Edward Earl Purinton, or we'll call him Earl. That's what his family referred to him as. Oh, was really? born, yeah, cool. was born in Morgantown, West Virginia in 1878. And his father was a psychologist, a professor, uh, a teacher. They ultimately moved to Granville, Ohio for about 10 years, a decade, as his father became the president of Denison University, which still is around today. It's a small liberal arts college in Eastern Ohio, a beautiful little campus. Uh, We'll get more into that soon. Uh, After he graduated um, from Denison University in 1899, he was actually un- very unhealthy uh, in his childhood. He was raised, uh, he inherited a very weak body, uh, and he had about 15 forms of different ailments. The doctors had given up hope. This is what he writes in one of his books, uh, that between between uh, between depression and digestion issues and lungs, all, all of his faculties seemed to be struggling. And the, the doctors basically gave him a bunch of different medications and told him to, to take it easy, stay in a wheelchair and relax. He was not inclined to do that. He had a very active mind. He, Good for him. <laughs> and he, he wanted to, to heal himself. He wanted to find answers to his ailments. And so when he graduated college, he traveled the world. He traveled to Europe and to Asia to gain knowledge and experience Uh, for the various health matters that he had. And through that experience, he studied 500 systems of health and efficiency, which uh, is sort of the the overarching information collection that he he then went on to pursue the rest of his his career, built on these principles that he studied and learned in, in healing his ailments. Wait, so hang on one second. You said he studied five hundred systems of health and efficiency. How long did he spend studying all of these? Well, from, from what I gather from the, from his travels, he was traveled for about two years uh, across again, across Europe and Asia. He did come back to the States and then moved to New York city where he continued to work in the health industry uh where he further developed and cultivated his his knowledge and experience, putting it into practice as well, and really seeing a big transformation in himself over those the, the next few years, where he nice. went from very weak and very unhealthy to uh, to a very healthy and productive individual, and he realized, and he was also a masterful writer, very poetic, very philosophical, and he was able to put all of that knowledge. And began writing about it, and people found a great response. It, it was, it was, there was a following that was building around around his work, and ultimately he publishes one of his, his book, Efficient Living, in 1915. That got wide recognition, um, and it sold sold very well, and that began his career at the Independent Magazine, which was the popular magazine at the time. Uh, 
sort of the frontline news and information, uh, it, 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 it folded the Harper's Weekly, which was, you know, going back to the Civil War, that was the, uh, the frontline newspaper. So right. this, became, this is sort of the, the premier weekly publication uh, in, the, in the country, in the United States, headquartered in New York City in the Woolworth Building. And he becomes the editor of the magazine, as well as a weekly columnist writing his, uh, his philosophies and his ideas on efficiency, on health, on happiness, on balance, on achieving success in life. And his books, uh, The Triumph of the Man Who Acts, particularly, is a collection of a lot of these articles, of the best of his articles, um, and the best of his ideas. It's uh, so again, wildly popular. He had a very large audience and we can get more into detail about that as far as his, uh, as far as his audience and other, other mediums of, of communication. Let's, let's slow down for a minute to make sure that anyone listening here understands this was what? 1910s, 1915, 1916, over a hundred years ago. And it sounds like he's very similar to a lot of um, big names today in the personal development and motivational space here. You know, Tony Robbins, uh, Lewis Howes, uh, you know, Jay Shetty, people like that. We think of motivational speakers having not really, you know, been out in the forefront uh, until maybe, you know, the 1950s, 1960s. And he was way, way ahead of that time. So it's fascinating to me. It, it, it is remarkable. Uh, w- one of the most popular uh, personal development books was written by Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. That was published in the in 1930s, I think 1934, or 1936. Right. So that this comes decades after Puritan's work. And what I find about his work is it's not that it's uh, it's a book on on self improvement, Be- even though it is. It, it is much deeper. It is. It is deceptively deep in how in how he gets <laughs> in how he gets you to to think about yourself, and he's very philosophical but very practical. Uh, he he flows. He has a poetry in the way he describes things, and he gets you to laugh at yourself, but also to take yourself seriously, and to consider what is going on inside. It's not just about how can I put a good impression, but how can you make a great self. And he's fairly straightforward in his language too. I mean, he doesn't uh, he doesn't beat around the bush. No, not at all. He 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 tells it. He says it directly as it is supposed to be, without mincing words. He makes it. He does. He does uh, have a great way of writing and a great way of expressing. Uh, but the, his points are very clear and very direct and very relatable. There are so many times that I personally felt like he was just talking directly to me. And I, I imagine that's how most people who in, encounter his work relate to it. It, it. it it captures you, it draws you in, and it creates an instant bond between reader and writer. So again, 1915, 1916, when you read these lessons, they're really relatable to us today. And he was what? 15, 20 years before Dale Carnegie. And a lot of his lessons, you know, we hear today, but we've never heard the name Edward Earl Purinton. 
it, it's so funny actually. The he last was lost. he he was lost. I was in my research, and we're going to get to the whole the whole yeah. rollout. But the last um, publishing that I saw of his name in a newspaper, I think, is in Chicago Tribune, nineteen sixty five, and the quote is, "Forget it. You've never heard of Edward Earl Purinton." He he definitely got lost to history. Let me let me let me back up and well, and explain how I found him and how this all started. My discovery came about in this way. Uh, COVID hits, uh, and it really comes to us, to our, to, to our, our side of the woods, uh, in March. Yeah. And that, that slows everything down, drives everything to a standstill. Uh, my, my regular day job is I'm, I'm in sales, and that really dried up. And I needed to keep myself occupied and busy with something else. And I quickly tried my hands at doing a number of different different things, but nothing was clicking. Nothing was really working, and uh, and it was it was very stressful for me to suddenly be put into a position where I didn't have proper footing. I wasn't sure what I'm doing, what what's going to happen. There was a lot of anxiety, a lot of angst about the future, and ultimately, this led me into a pretty dark depression. I was locked in bed for weeks. Uh, I didn't eat for a full week while I was in bed. It was it was quite uh, quite painful. I was ruminating, just heavy, heavy, heavy depression settled in. And in talking to a therapist, he advised that I write to because I explained that 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 was helpful for me in uh, in sort of expression uh, and and relief. And so he advised me that I write a letter to myself. And in that letter, I wrote, you are a lion, Ari, feed yourself triumph, sort of as a motivational mantra. The name Ari right, yeah. is Hebrew for lion. Oh, and I love so, that. And so that, that always uh, rang with me in terms of personality. I can identify as a lion. And uh, I wrote feed yourself triumph, and I liked the way that line sounded. It, it, it sounded good. It sounded powerful. And it, it did move me. It inspired me. And I wanted to see further inspiration. So I Googled that phrase, feed yourself triumph. And five entries down, I see an excerpt from an old book, 1916, Googled books, a link. So I, I click into it and I'm, I'm just, I'm reading through this old book and it's, it's, it's hitting me, hitting me in the face. It's so poignant. It is so relevant. And I was 40 pages in before I realized what was going on. I quickly printed out the whole book, four pages per sheet, and I jumped out of it. Like I, I was so consumed by it because of, of of the message of how much it was speaking to me, and I, I, I devoured it in one sitting. I, I just went through it completely, and I was I was shocked. How how could I have never heard of such a book? Who's this author? What is going on? Or this is this is this is deep. This is powerful. This is heavy stuff. I I, I was I was blown away. Was it the full message or was there one thing in particular that made you spring out of bed? That's a great question. Overall, it was the entire substance, the entire body of his work was, was just, it spoke to me on many levels. Uh, philosophically, it, it just, it rang so much of the, of the lessons that I had studied and taught as a rabbi. It, 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 it just sounded true from, uh, from everything. And the one line that I saw that really spoke to me is where he writes, when you lie in bed a few weeks, you can hardly walk. 
To walk right, you must walk every day. So to think right, you must think every day and towards a given point, just as you walk. I, I, I just, I found that speaking to me directly. Yes. Like I'm, I'm, I'm trapped in bed. I'm lying down. I'm lost in thought. I'm, I'm miserable. I'm, I'm flying everywhere. Focus, concentration, effort. Oh my goodness. All of these ideas are, these are universal concepts. And it's, and it was just, it was the, the right message at the right time. Uh, and I was hooked. And I just, I still couldn't get over how I never heard of this guy. I love that quote that you just shared. I love that passage because to me, um, that's focus, effort, and discipline. And that's something that I've been focusing on over the past few weeks uh, and you know, have been uh, teaching somebody lately about discipline, getting into certain habits. You know, If you want to make a habit of journaling, if you want to make a habit of daily Bible reading, daily prayer, or whatever... A lot of musicians will tell you it's much better for you to practice and kind of like play with your musical instrument maybe 10 minutes every day instead of one hour once a week. It's that regular daily discipline habit. I love that. Sure. The rhythm and the routine, it's, it's something that's required. And also the point was that it's not just your, your body, but there needs to be an exercise, a conscious exercise of everything, of your heart, your mind, and your soul. In addition to the body, they all require focus, effort, and attention. Just as you would exercise your body diligently, you must also do that to your heart, in your in your relationships, in your development, uh, in your business, in your in your in your work, in your ideas, in your discipline, in your expression, in your writing or music or whatever can express your soul in prayer all of these ideas, they require a daily act, a daily occurrence, a daily interaction. And it's balance across all of those areas. I get it. I, I understand that reading that would really move you. And I imagine, I have to think that, you know, over the past few decades, maybe there have been a handful of other people who have found Puritan's work who have found, you know, the triumph of the man who acts and they read it and it moved them, but they likely just kept it to themselves, maybe shared it with a couple of friends. You could have done the same thing. Like, you know, it, it could have motivated you and you could have done really well from that, but you decided to republish the book. Why did you decide to republish it when you just could have kept it to yourself? It's funny. It's actually that that question, that specific question is what I texted my brothers. I said that I found a book and, and I'm just blown away by it. Should I keep it as personal, personal reference or should I republish it? And they all said right away, keep it as personal reference. So I, so I realized then that I had to, I had to publish it. I, I, felt, I felt whatever like your I, brother says, do I, the opposite. I felt like I was a child on a beach finding a shiny shell and running to show the parents. It, it was, it was, I was just compelled to share with everybody this book. It was so powerful. It was one of the best books I ever read. It roused me out of my slump of despair. And I knew that it just as it sparked me, it can spark many others. And right, just the idea of I'm going to publish this was firmly planted in my mind. He even has a line in the book, try this experiment. The next time you feel a conviction, a desire, inspiration that seems unusual or even untenable, act on it fully, promptly, and implicitly. 
And so I did. I, I, I just ran with it. Now, how does a, how does a guy who's never, I never wrote anything before and I never published a book before, but I was able to, to do that because while I never published a book, I did have background in uh, design. I, I was a rabbi for five years, but during that time I was also just to supplement my income. I was a graphic designer and I wasn't, I wasn't well paid, but I definitely earned the experience and the knowledge of press and design and production and layout and all of that. So it, it, it was, it was work that I was very familiar with in terms of what needed to get done. There were a couple of things that I wasn't sure about. So I was, I was easily able to figure out the, the pieces that I needed and I just, I went to work. Uh, so this, I found the book in May, the second week of May. And I immediately, like two weeks later was already uh, knee deep in the project. I had hired an editor right away to work with me on my introduction and forward uh, as, as well as to restructure the book itself. We, 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 I changed up his order a little bit and put it into sections. I, I wanted to do that with guidance of a professional who's been in, the, who's been in the literary field for, for decades so that I'm not just doing this on my own, so to speak. Right. Uh, but I, I have proper guidance. And I found that that was very important. You know, in, whenever you're going in a new venture, it's always good to have, a coach or or an advisor to walk you through the process so that you can uh, get to the fullest experience. Hey, and even even when you're not going through a new venture, I mean, I I think no matter what you're doing, every time you still need the guidance, the counsel of a coach or some other mentor, just to make sure that you're not the only one seeing uh, seeing this process. I, I agree with that. I definitely that that is. I was just saying that, especially in a new venture where you really are are you're 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 flying blind. Oh yeah, uh, without without the full knowledge. But the, in about six weeks, I had uh, everything reorganized, laid out, uh, an introduction written. It was it was ready to go. Plus the illustrations that I included as well. That, that was all ready to go for for printing, and I paused because. Why wasn't this book published? What, what meaning? Why wasn't it known? Well, how did yeah. it vanish? What what is stopping it? Why why did it freeze in time? So that question was really bugging me, and I needed to dig a little bit deeper before I publish something and then find out something that I didn't want to find out after the fact. So I wanted to see: is there any are there any skeletons? Is there anything uh, controversial that I should know about beforehand? So I booked a flight to. Uh, Pittsburgh. And from there, I drove to Granville, Ohio, to Denniston University. And over there, I was able to get into their library archives. And that's where I first I first saw his original volumes. They, ne they never heard of him. They did hear of his father, who was the president of the university. There's even a big portrait of him. Right. But nobody heard of him himself. And so it was just surprising that I'm, I'm actually unearthing history here and, and, and an alumni of their university who was quite renowned. Like an time. archaeologist or like, or like Indiana Jones or something. It, it, it was, it was, ex, it was exceptionally exciting. It was investigative journalism or, or I was, I was in the trenches really digging deep and I found what I was looking for, which was, I found his original volume. Uh, it's funny that I was such a stickler for the design and the specifics because one thing that I was looking for in the printing of the book is I needed to have a printer who can print a deckled edge or a rough cut paper because I wanted Ooh. to give it that old time look. Yeah. And when I saw the original book, 
that's exactly what I saw in it. I was like, yes, I, <laughs> I got what I was looking for. Um, that was validation right there. There, yeah, there was a lot of validation. It was also like, wow, this guy really did exist. He was, it, it is real. All the, all the, all the, uh, the dots are, are, are leading somewhere. The breadcrumbs are, are following a trail. And so that was, so that was the university. I got to experience that. He was a, he was a professor of Greek, um, at the Duane Academy, which is there on the a building on the university. He, he lived there. That was, that was, that was his, uh, th- that was the birth of a lot of his ideas from there. He travels, uh, the world, but I didn't follow that. I just went back to his hometown of Morgantown, West Virginia, which they moved after nine in 1901, his father leaves Denison and becomes the prefet, the uh, president of West Virginia university in Morgantown. So that's where, that's where there's a lot more, uh, information about him and about his family. Uh, there's boxes and boxes of archives at the university because of COVID it's difficult to get into. So it's, it's a slow process, uh, back and forth, just trying to get more information. But I, I, I began to learn a lot more about him. And the more I learned, the more fascinated I was and the more shocked I was at how he vanished. We're talking about a man who in his prime, based on the, based on various, uh, research, he had, produced over 10 million copies of his works. He had an active readership of over 3 million. He, he corresponded personally with over 100,000 people. And a lot of this, a lot of the details of this is, are, is in the university uh, archives. And so it only made the question even bigger. How did he vanish? It with such, uh, with such a, an important message and such a, a wide audience then he drifts off. Hang on one second, Ari, because I want to I want to backtrack here a minute. You're saying that he sold 10 million books. Yes. And he had a following of three million people. Yes. So today in 2021 would say, wow, like that's that's really successful. As a writer, as an author, that's a that's a pretty big platform right there. But this was over a hundred years ago. The reading public a hundred years ago was not what it is today. You didn't have that many people as part of the population reading and following someone like this. So to me, those numbers are even larger when you consider that that was a hundred years ago. It's astounding. And the more I dug, the more, the more marvelous the, the story and the character becomes because he's his, his active readership. He writes here, this is a letter that he's writing to his, um, to his, uh, to all those who are involved in his personal efficiency course, dear friend for years, my readers and clients throughout America. And there are now 3 million of them have been asking me how to learn efficiency, learn it easily, quickly, and well. Now I can answer. He he continued uh, to correspond with many of these people, uh, even once the magazine that he was the editor of. By the way, his works were also translated in about twenty languages. Um, oh, I have wow. I have I haven't been able to find uh, any of the old ones yet. But one thing that I did find in my search is that about ten years ago, an Italian fellow found Purinton's work. And was so moved by it that he felt compelled to translate it into Italian. So I, when I saw that, I was like, wow, you know what? This, this actually does. This is a great proof of concept. This is a great idea. And I think that the audience is there. There was a lot of great 
uh, validation all throughout the process. It, it, things just seemed to come together cohesively, simply. It, it, if I was looking for something, if I needed to find something, I found it. Uh, I found his obituary from his fraternity. And that was, I think they had written it in the 60s in, um, uh, what was the fraternity? Sigma Chi. Sigma Chi. Sigma Chi. He was Sigma Chi. And uh, they, that's where they, they write about his, um, the, the, his success and the volumes. But ultimately what happens to him, the magazine, the independent magazine gets sold in 1924 and it moves to Boston. Ultimately, goes out of business, but because of World War One, which occurs, and you know, America gets really involved in 1918. He did sign up for the draft, even though he he didn't he didn't uh, actually he didn't actually go to war. But with all that chaos, his sister's husband had passed away. She was widowed. She moved back in with her parents, so he too moved back to Morgantown, West Virginia, to live with the family. Very very close knit family. Uh, it's actually, and, and Morgantown is the kind of place that somebody said to me recently, everybody comes back home to Morgantown. Even if you leave, you always end up, it's a perfectly balanced community. And so city. even a hundred years ago, there, there were boomerang kids. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but his health, again, sometimes we, we, we are not the full stewards of our, of our existence and, and God ultimately is in charge. And that as much as we, we, we strive to, to work on ourselves Ultimately, there are forces that are beyond our control. And a lot of his ailments returned, particularly his weak lungs, um, and also, also um, his depressions, melancholies, uh, came back pretty strong. What he did, and I, I'm seeing this in letters between him and his father, he, he would go, he had spent time uh, at different, uh, different hospitals and, and trying to regain his health. But he did maintain an active correspondence with people. He just became more reserved and more insulated. He never married. And that is ultimately why he kind of disappeared into the annals of history, leaving a big legacy behind, but nobody to carry it forward. Like leaving a hidden legacy. Absolutely. A hidden legacy. So much so that in the course of my uh, research, when I finally had everything completed and ready to and ready to move forward, especially after my visit to Morgantown, where I had pictures of of all the various of the family homes and the grave sites and and all the facts of of piecing this all together, I reached out to the closest living relative of his that I was able to find, and it was a great niece of his from uh, who lives in Rhode Island, and I reached out to her. I just, it was a cold email. Hi, Betsy. I've, I've been doing research in your family, the crazy story, how I found this book. Uh, and I sent some photos. If you can please get in touch, I'd like to, I'd like to talk to you about them. She said, typically I would not answer a stranger out of the blue, but this is very compelling. And uh, we scheduled a time, we started talking and she couldn't believe what I had found. She says, in our family, he was just a name and a date on the family tree. We really didn't know much about him. We knew that he was sort of a, a philosophical poet, but nothing else. Didn't Brit know that he had a following of 3 million people. Didn't know. But her grandfather, his brother, moved to Washington, and, and that's, that's where her family continues and didn't really spend much time with him. Uh, so, again, his, his legacy remains buried until I unearthed it. 
Now here's a very interesting kicker. Remember that I mentioned to you that I had hired an editor. I called her up and I just told her the excitement that I found his great niece, Betsy from Rhode Island, and how exciting it is and wonderful. And the editor writes back, Betsy Purinton, my goodness, I was at Brown with her. <laughs> the, 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 the coincidence that, that continued throughout this process, like I said, it was, it was remarkable how these tiny layers of links just came together. <laughs> Almost like a divine hand kind of guiding the process here. It, it, it definitely felt that way. It felt very real. It felt like it was the right thing, that I was on the right course. Uh, again, it was very energizing for me. And the fact that I was able to produce something that actually I was, I was, I'm very proud of the work that I produced. It's, I think it, it, it does credit to his work and bringing it back, so to speak. Just the whole story alone of his story and then your story of finding this and and reproducing this out in the world, that alone is fascinating. But what I really want to dig into now is his actual lessons. Because as I was reading the book, I kept thinking, okay, this was written over a hundred years ago. And these lessons are spot on. They are relatable today in 2021. Now, I'm glad that you kept the language in there intact because I love reading the language that was written at that time. And I think I apply the 80-20 rule to this, where 80% of the language and the lessons in there is really relatable. Maybe 10 to 20% you know, is just kind of interesting and humorous to hear the language of that time. It's like, yeah, you know, okay, this is me, this is me. Oh, well, I don't normally engage in fisticuffs at the gymnasium. So no, that's not me. But it is so fascinating how timeless these lessons are. So I want to dig into those now. And one of the things we talked about was you talked about efficiency and efficiency of service. So how did Puritan talk about keeping balance among those life areas? He, he equates health and efficiency. They're sort of interchangeable, meaning to say that a, a healthy person is an efficient person. An efficient person is a healthy person. Efficient okay. means that you're optimized. So it's not just that your body is optimized to to process and to function properly, but also your mind, your heart, your soul, all of your elements are optimized in a way that is the maximum efficient for you. For example, in the work that you're doing, are you an efficient type of work is where you are situated in the best position for all of your natural qualities to shine, as well as uh, you're in a place where you can develop and grow in that as opposed to just stagnating. He, he, he talks about, when he talk about uh, efficiency of service, specifically, he, he, he actually has a very important line where he talks about, to maintain balance, let's say you're, you're, you're running a business. Uh, an efficient business is one focused on themselves, their customers, their clients, their product and service. What, what is the, the key focus? And it, it really is, requires all the above. And when it means that you have to focus on yourself as much as you focus on your client, that you need to make sure that you are being paid every penny that your time is worth and that you're also giving your client to the maximum of your ability. And it's also important to treat your employees as extensions of yourself, that every 
aspect of, of them reflects you. And so if you're going to mistreat an employee, well, that's, it's worse to mistreat an employee than a client because the, the client goes, but the employee stays uh, to continue uh, spreading the seeds of, of, of uh, he, he has an interesting quote. Oh, so, uh, right. And the promise to a clerk is more binding than a promise to the richest patron. The patron goes, but the clerk stays to scatter seeds of trouble. That is amazing to hear because we hear that today thinking that that's new language, thinking that we've come through a handful of decades of saying that the customer is always right. You've got to hustle and you know, and, and not giving enough focus on your own team members and your own employees as well. But it sounds like he's saying that to keep everything fully balanced, you know, you've got to treat yourself well. You've got to treat your employees well and provide them with the experience that they need to be productive and optimized and efficient. And I think you alluded this to this earlier, Give as much as you can to your customers. And to me, that, that speaks about serving people. That's all about serving people, serving your employees, serving your customers, and serving yourself. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and on all of these levels, he, it, there's a fine theme of balance throughout the whole book that if you, if you do too much and you become sort of this altruistic, incredible person, then you become a doormat. And you end up burning out and losing your momentum or, or desire to continue. But true, but if, if for every effort that you put in, you get rewarded as well, just as you're rewarding the other. And, if, and, and it even helps you to, to give somebody else more because you're also being rewarded. If you, there's, no, there's no limits. You're not suddenly afraid. Well, I can't, instead of becoming this business where I'm going to, everybody's trying to cut the other person down. It's, it's more, there's more liberty and freedom when you know that everybody's going to benefit from this. And that is something that a lot of people are talking about today or starting to is an abundance mindset. So not making, you know, not talking about how, how big my slice of the pie is compared to somebody else, but recognizing that you can grow the pie if you want to. We can yeah, just have a bigger pie. And and the happier you are in providing the service because you're getting a good reward, the happier you are to, to give somebody else as well. As long as you know that most people are afraid that, like, for example, when I used to do design, the, the compensation was very poor. And it's like, you know what? I would spend, I would spend uh, days working on a project and, and, and the, the results were, or parse. So it, it, it does create a burnout. However, the, the, the silver lining is I, I, I did develop the skills and that stays with you forever. So whatever work it is you're, you're doing, you are developing something that you get to keep forever that you can then put into practice somewhere else. So it's not just about whatever you're doing and, and doing what you know best, but it's also developing your skills and increasing them. He, he talks about that a lot in the book as well develop and train yourself to do things better, to do more things, your ability to learn more skills and more abilities, starting with what you naturally can do and growing from there. Love that. Always growing. And I I also like how he talked about if you're not growing, then you're decaying, then you're already dying. 
Yes, he 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 talks well, and and this this is where we can branch into his whole discussion of happiness. The what is happiness? Ooh. What is joy? What is uh, what is optimism? His lessons in happiness uh, they're essentially like this: that nothing can make you happy, and it, it purely can come. It, it has to come from within. You can't expect happiness from anything else. And what brings us most happiness? Growth. But the majority, seeing only the fruit of development, which is happiness, fail to consider the long, hard months of pushing up through the earthen crust that lies between the seed and the fruitage. So during growing times, we are apt to feel impatient. And that is where a lot of people realize that, oh, if only I had this, I'd be happy. If only I had that, I'd be happy. Think about the experience that you're dealing with right now. You may feel think you're miserable, but you are growing in something. Something is happening. There yeah. is a there is an internal happiness in that in that recognition, if that makes sense. No, that makes absolute sense, and that's something that I learned oh four or five years ago around happiness. And um, gosh, Sean Acor, the Happiness Advantage, uh, Marty Seligman, his work on learned optimism, recognizing that there's nothing outside of me that's going to be able to make me happy. And nothing can make me happy. Happiness is a choice. Happiness is something that I need to choose to have no matter what. And it can't be, oh, you know what? When I reach this point, then I'll be happy. Oh, once I hit this milestone, then I'll be happy. It's being happy regardless and being happy along the way and being happy during the process and that and that growth process the full the full picture is 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 what is what true happiness is uh, one of his first books that he wrote is a small little book it was for the harmony club which is an interesting little group uh that promoted happiness uh he the book was called how to be happy and it's essentially <laughs> the go. chapters of um in the triumph it's it's that section of those few chapters i guess happiness wasn't really a big theme in those days and he was on top of it, uh, just as optimism. You said Martin Seligman writes a book, Learned Optimism. He has, yes. a, he has a whole section on the science of optimism, learned optimism, the, the importance of being an optimist. And what is true optimism? A learned optimist sees every obstacle, uh, every critic, and every hardship as guidance and instruction for growth and progress. As he says, a natural optimist is a natural fool. But an efficient optimist hopes entirely without reason, but works entirely within it. And the idea is to hope with your heart and work with your hands, not to be just a dreamer with no foothold or a plotter with no foresight, but to look at every failure as a lesson to be learned. That is optimism. Optimism is that everything is there to teach you something. Somebody criticizes you. Thank you. You are helping me improve myself. Something doesn't go the way it's supposed to. Wonderful. Now I know that that doesn't work, so I can try something that does work. It, all of these experiences, all this feedback that we get that most people are afraid of. I know for me, I, I'm, I, I, I don't like a lot of the feedback, but he has taught me to begin to appreciate it in a way that it, it only serves to, your, to, to heal and grow. Do not just to be optimistic. Oh, everything's going to be great. Hula la. That's not the way it works. A real optimist is somebody who has been through hell and will continue going forward because they know that there is greatness ahead. And there's that growth in there as well. So, you know, if you're treating 
every failure as a lesson, then you're treating that as growth opportunities as, as well. It's a timeless lesson and something that I heard you know, maybe a couple of years ago. And I thought, wow, that is just fascinating to me. So thinking that that lesson was somewhat new here in the you know 21st century, but that lesson was being taught over a hundred years ago, a handful of years ago, I came to the realization and, and I, I actually learned this from Jocko Willink. I don't know if you know him, but he's, he's sure, another, this, uh, the Navy SEAL. Yeah. So Jocko and his lessons on good when things don't go your way, good, you know, so uh, somebody rubbed you the wrong way. Somebody gave you some negative feedback. Good. Now you know what you need to do to improve. You didn't get that job that you interviewed for. Good. You know, this is a, this is an opportunity for you to grow your skills even more, you know, towards getting that job. Right. Mentioning Jocko, he's also at times Purinton is as relentless as David Goggins in his pursuit of advancement, of, of development, of not to allow that, that voice, meaning to look at the hardest thing and go after that. Whatever that is inside you that's telling you no, then that's, that's really where you will find the most growth. The thing that you're most afraid of is really where you'll, you'll shine the most. Um, it, it's funny because you, you're saying how, how relevant it is today. It's incredible how similar our time is to the way it was 100 years ago. Uh, the more research I did in that in that era, there was enormous global unrest. There was a world war brewing. Uh, there was anarchy and riots. Everywhere. There was a global pandemic. Gl- major cl- global pandemic, millions <laughs> dying. And yet with all of that chaos going on, here is a man who is counseling and advising people, both titans of industry as well as everyday folks, on how to achieve greatness and success in your small domain and in the large domain. He talks about the necessity for you to be bigger than just yourself. You have to serve a community, to serve your, your, your business, to serve your family. And these are all duties that for a man to be, a, uh, for a man or a woman, again, obviously he was talking in a time when this is before women were in the work, workplace, but his messages are for everybody, that it's incumbent on one to fully embrace opportunity and not, not to give up and not to say, oh, that's too hard. Go for it. Go for it. It just continues to blow my mind, you know, how much these lessons are still relevant today and how much they still stand the test of time. You've read all of his stuff, even beyond, you know, just this book. Are there any lessons either here in the book or any other lessons that he has that you feel maybe don't stand the test of time? Uh, That's, that's, that's a good question. Um, there, most of the substance of his work is timeless uh, because generally they're addressing human nature, behavior, encouraging optimism, happiness, health. Uh, the, some things that were just a little bit unrelatable and were too specific to his area, like specific lessons of individuals from World War I that I just found were too uh, time-focused time and time-centered, just as writers today will write to cultural mm-hmm. references. So I found that that was, that was irrelevant. Um, there was also some of his opinions and science on the physical appearance, the science of character that oh. <laughs> would would not fly today. Uh, he would it would it would cause a big cancel. So, <laughs> uh, but I, I laughed through it because it was so it was hilariously funny. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> take that lesson with a grain of salt. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, and again, I, 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 I kept some of the stuff out of the reprint that I just feel wouldn't, wouldn't carry over. And that was obviously with, with the guidance and the help of the editor as well. And so beyond this, beyond the triumph of the man who acts, you know, he has other books and it, it sounds like you have plans to publish his other works. Tell me about your plans. All right. So in, I didn't just publish a book. I kind of launched a publishing company uh, called Triumph Book Press. And the intention right now, the focus is to start with the Puritan collection to, to remaster and republish um, a number of his works. I have about, I have about six projects on the table right now, two that are actually going to get done this year. We're going to publish um, his book, Efficient Living, which was his first big bestseller as well as personal efficiency in business. And so I think these three will be a nice little collection uh, because it's not just a nice historical piece, but it's also very timely and relevant and it's, and they're powerful. Whether you're, whether you're looking to master yourself or your business, there are specific um, areas that, that you can do disciplines that we apply to ourselves that, uh, are efficient in work and they're, they're timeless. They've always worked and they'll continue to work. And it sounds like they contain these hidden lessons that don't need to remain hidden anymore. Absolutely. Uh, again, the more that I read of him, the more excited I get. Uh, and I, I've just been, I've been sharing this with people, uh, excited just for people to read it. And the feedback is generally the same that, wow, how, how in the world, where did this come from? Incredible. We've never heard of this. This is amazing. Uh, so it's been, it, it's been a remarkable, a remarkable journey. And I'm so glad of that. I, I got, I get to spend my time doing this, uh, that even though I started out COVID in a, in a miserable heap, uh, it turned out into quite a blessing because I was able to uncover something very special, not just in the world, but within myself too. I'm grateful that you were able to find it for yourself and you were able to get out of your uh, COVID funk, for lack of a better term, and improve yourself. But then I'm also grateful that you decided to share it with the world. It's too good to, to keep for private uh, reference. It was screaming publish. When you publish the other books, Efficient Living, Personal Efficiency in Business, you got to promise me you're going to use the deckled edge printing on the paper, right? Of course. I'm going to keep the same styles and the themes to, to keep, uh, to keep in, in, in touch. Again, I, 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 I believe in, in top quality. So when I went to print this, it wasn't just, oh, let me see the quickest way I can get it out there and boom. So we can just put a slap any cover on it and, and, and let it fly. Attention to detail was very important, and the I wanted that when somebody holds the book, they actually feel that this is this is a good quality book. This is a real deal, and so the hardcover really expresses that. Uh, you can you can buy them uh, anywhere books are sold: Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Walmart. Uh, you can get it through our website. It's cheaper through our website directly, and that is triumphbookpress. Dot com And Matt, for your listeners, I actually put in a special discount, a 20% off on top of the already reduced prices, what? plus free shipping, 20% off for your what? listeners if they use the code SIMPLE, S-I-M-P-L-E, for you guys, 20% off, and we'll keep that going because it's the audiences that uh, really resonate with these things. When, when people talk about them, they speak about to, to their to their crowd. And uh, 
momentum happens. People are starting to to share. Our Instagram is very active where we post a, post a quote a day. You can follow us on Instagram at Triumph B Press. Uh, also, like all the socials, Facebook and, and all of the same at. So Triumph B Press or the website Triumph Book Press. Also, if anybody wants to subscribe to our email newsletter, you can do so on our website and you will get the free ebook version of, uh, of Triumph. And last promotional piece, I have to say this because I don't even know if I shared this with you yet. Uh, in addition to, to producing a very high quality book, I also needed to make a high quality audiobook. Oh, and so I did that too. And that was released and that's available on audible. Uh, the triumph of the man who acts, I hired a, an actor, a voice actor to give, uh, almost like Edward is reading it himself as though Earl was reading it. He, um, the voice is sort of beckons the, that, that old era. When I, when I listen to it, I sort of, I imagine that it's him. It, 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 it flows in, in that, in that way, a very pensive thought, thoughtful voice. I can't wait to listen to that now. Oh um, yeah. And- I'm going to, I'm going to send, I'm going to send that to you, Matt. Awesome. Thank you. And thank you for the 20% discount. So, you know, anybody listening, they can go to triumphbookpress.com and order the book right there at a lower price already than you can order from Amazon or Barnes and Noble. And then using the discount code of simple, S-I-M-P-L-E, that gives you a 20% discount. Well, Ari, Last question for you, and I don't know if this is easy to answer or not, just based on the fact that this was written 100 years ago, but if you were to create a five-song soundtrack for The Triumph of the Man Who Acts, what songs would you include? Uh, I love the question. I mean, the fact that Purinton is so poetic, I would have to go with the greatest poet of our, of our era, the great Bob Dylan, oh. and I would, I would build a full nice. list of Bob Dylan from... I contain multitudes because he has in there the line. I was listening to this on my way to, I first heard the song on my way to West Virginia. And I just heard the line. I go right to the edge. I go right to the end. I go right where all things lost are made good again. And I thought, wow, that's, that's quite, quite fitting. Uh, Also the times there are changing because the times are always a changing. That's the only thing that never changes is that the times are always a changing uh, that that was uh, the answer. My friend is blowing in the wind. <laughs> yeah. Forever young. May your hands always be busy. May your feet always be swift. May you have a strong foundation when the winds of change shift. Uh, Maggie's farm, uh, an expression of self and of self-identity. <laughs> well, I try my best to be just like I am, but everybody wants me to be just like them. It, 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 all of that. I think Bob Dylan captures it, it poetically, musically. Uh, a lot of these ideas. Um, and it's just, it was, it was what played around in my background the whole time I was working on it. Oh, nice. So that literally was your soundtrack for when you were working on this. Yeah. Bob Dylan's always my soundtrack. Well, the, th- well, the cool thing about Bob Dylan is that anybody can sing Bob Dylan and, and it'll still sound good. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes even better when you, when you sing it yourself. There you go. Ari, thank you so much. This has been a, uh, fantastic visit. I love the story of Puritan. I love your story of how you discovered and how you published this. And I love the lessons here. This is great. All right. Thanks so much. 
Awesome, Matt. Thank you. And I look forward to being back when we release the next books. Yes. I hope you enjoyed my discussion about Edward Earl Purinton with Ari Berkowitz. I cannot recommend The Triumph of the Man Who Acts enough. So go check it out at triumphbookpress.com. And you can get free shipping and 20% off when you use the discount code SIMPLE. S-I-M-P-L-E. And if this book isn't for you, I can guarantee that you have someone in your life who will benefit from it. And if you're enjoying the Simple Brand Podcast, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. It'll make it a lot simpler for you to get future episodes like the next one featuring Nick Westergaard. Nick's one of the top marketing keynote speakers and influencers. He's the host of the On Brand Podcast, and he's the author of Brand Now, How to Stand Out in a Crowded, Distracted World. Nick and I discuss how any business, large or small, can create a brand experience that's simple and transparent and can stand out at every customer interaction. So go ahead and subscribe and you'll automatically get Nick's episode as soon as it's live. Until then, keep it simple. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Simple Brand Podcast. Want to make your listening experience simple and automatically receive each new episode? Visit our website, simplebrandpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If you're finding value from the Simple Brand Podcast, leave us a rating or review. That helps us get the show to the ears of the people who need it most. Be sure to catch Matt right here next week. Same Matt time, same Matt channel. Until then, keep it simple.